Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Big Digs podcast. This week, I will do a season grading of all the clubs that finished in the finals, including the Fremantle Dockers. And I also cover all of the latest AFL news, including a possible fifth man on the interchange bench. I'm your host as always, and you are listening to the Big Digs podcast. Cue the new intro. G'day ladies and gentlemen and welcome to episode 20 of the Big Digs podcast. Don't know about you, but I'm a pretty big fan of the new intro. It just included some new commentary over some of my favourite for our highlights, not only from 2022, but from a couple of years past. So hopefully, unlike the last one, it doesn't expire like milk. But with that being said, let's jump into the Docker recap for this week. The AFL is discussing a possible fifth man on the interchange bench as it looks to introduce that new rule in the 2023 season. It is being reported that all AFL clubs have been sent three available options to how the interchange will work. Either four on the bench plus an injury substitution, four on the bench plus a more general substitute, the green vest, and a fifth man on the interchange bench plus an injury substitution. I don't understand why the game and mainly the bench has to be at least changed a little bit in every single season. Like, as the saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So I don't really understand the need to have changed at least one rule every time when going into a new season. It makes the game far more confusing than it has to be and it also makes us fans frustrated and more so confused. So, like, what's the point of trying to understand this new rule if it's just going to be changed in a year's time? That way, fans don't understand the new rule, so when the umpires accidentally make a new mistake because of that new rule, the AFL fans will not understand it, and the cycle just keeps going on. It just basically goes, the AFL introduces a new rule, fans don't care because they'll change it by the end of next year, AFL umpire follows the rule, and fans are left confused, and yada yada yada, it just keeps going around circles. I definitely think in Frio's case, having a fifth bench would help, considering most of our players left this year due to a lack of opportunity. If there was a fifth bench in 2022, would we have seen Mitch Croden and Connor Blakely be sacked? Or better yet, delisted? I don't know, it's something that we'll really have to discuss once we cross that bridge. Clubs expect the AFL will introduce a magic round, injecting a 23rd home and away match meaning the seasons run for 24 weeks, but the league will guard against heighted player workloads by looping pre-season games. This so-called Magic Round concept will have all nine games played in one state. Although Perth and mainly Optus Stadium quickly became the favourite, it is now being led by New South Wales and South Australia already bidding for the right to host. With bids expected to be more than $10 providing a cash injection of about $500,000 for each club. I guess a major issue with introducing something like the Magic Round would be the crowds. Because, well, if it is going to be in South Australia, there are only two clubs that will actually attract a decent crowd, with that being the Adelaide Crows and Port Adelaide. 
what happens if GWS and Gold Coast play at South Australia? You know, that just isn't going to draw a decent crowd. And this obviously also implies for Freo as well. We don't exactly have a great fan base in South Australia. And don't forget, this also qualifies for some Victorian clubs as well. I mean, the Brisbane Lions and Melbourne qualifying final in 2021 only had a crowd of 13,784. But other than that, I don't really have a problem with the concept of a magic round. I mean, we literally get another round of footy for free, and we also get rid of the preseason matches, which don't really amount to anything. But hey, as long as we get more footy, I honestly couldn't care what it is. The Fremantle Dockers AFLW side has sent out their season on a big high after sending out club legend Kara Antonio with a win in her last game as a player, with that also being her first game back since her terrible injury at the start of the season. Fremantle beat Hawthorne 7-7-49 to the Hawks 7-2-44, concluding what has been a pretty awful AFLW season by our girls with a big W. So with that being said, that caps off the Docker recap for this week. So let's jump into the top eight season grading for all of the clubs that managed to make it to the finals. By the way, I am going to talk about the Dockers until last, just because obviously with me being a fan, there's going to be a lot more in-depth to what I thought. So I will review all of the seven clubs now and save the Dockers until last. But with that being said, let's jump into it. I'm going to do something a little different just to make things more interesting. Rather than start at the team that finished just inside the top eight, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to start with the team that finished on top of the ladder. And finishing on top of the ladder, the minor premiership also managed to go all the way and win the big cup, the premiership at the end, with that being the Geelong Cats. There's no surprises here. The Cats are going to get an A+, but honestly, the way they did it was just so dominant and entertaining. I'm going to give them a Ness. Their finals campaign was practically perfect from start to finish. They played in what is at least my opinion the game of the season with the qualifying final against Collingwood. They destroyed what was a very brave Lions team in the prelim finals. And then in the grand final they basically strangled the second best team into the competition to death. A team that they themselves lost to by 30 points in round 2 when Buddy Franklin kicked his 1000th goal. Bit funny how that works actually in retrospect. Sydney completely dominated Geelong with Buddy Franklin being the star player of the night. And then on grand final day, it was entirely opposite. So it really does show what 20 weeks of footy can do to both football clubs. The only bad thing I could actually think that happened to the Cats during this time was Max Holmes' injury, which later forced him not to play in the grand final. And honestly, if it wasn't for that, I would have given the Cats the absolute top grade S+. But regardless, it's still going to go down as one of the most dominant finals campaigns the game's ever seen. With the cherry on top being the perfect farewell to Joel Selwood. Coming up next, finishing second on the ladder is the Melbourne Demons, the reigning premiers at the time. The D's had, to put it safely, a really rough final series. I mean, when you start your season 10-0, and zero, having lo not lost a game in the first 10 rounds of the season, and then going out in straight final sets the way they did, you are going to get a pretty harsh grading. What's even worse is the sides they actually lost to. The Swans' loss at the MCG isn't that bad on retrospect, considering the Swans are basically Melbourne's kryptonite. 
But then you have the loss against Brisbane at the MCG. A side that, by the way, you absolutely smashed in your last two encounters. Both at the MCG and literally in Brisbane's own backyard. And then to be, what were Melbourne up by? They were up by 28 points. And then to lose to a side that had not won at that venue since 2014. While on top of that being the reigning premiers. Yeah, it's pretty easy to tell where this is going. Melbourne get a D. I mean, people might think that's a little harsh considering they finished second on the ladder. But I mean, to finish second and then go out the way they did. It's pretty easy to see why Melbourne fans are absolutely spewing in at the moment. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think a D is a little too harsh considering they, like I said, they did finish second on the ladder and they were 10 and zip. So I think either a C plus or B minus is more appropriate. I'm going to go the C plus. So the Melbourne Demons get a C plus. Now moving on to the third spot on the ladder, the Sydney Swans. I feel like with the Sydney Swans, you could either treat them in two different ways. You could either treat them harshly because they got absolutely belted in the grand final, or you can treat them nicely because they made it to the grand final unlike six of the eight teams inside the top eight. But on the other hand, yeah, they were absolutely destroyed in the grand final. So yeah, it, I guess it really just comes down to what perspective you have on the Swans. I'm more so the first. I think it's really admirable that they made it all the way to the grand final, but Obviously, when you get smashed by, what was it, 81 points in the end, you're going to get a very harsh marking, regardless of if you made it or not. But even with the grand final aside, the Swans did have a very impressive year. They obviously had the highlight of the season with Buddy Franklin kicking his 1,000th goal. The Swans, alongside Collingwood, are the only two teams in the comp to have beaten Melbourne twice. And, I mean, the Swans did play one hell of a final series until that grand final. All the pieces for the Swans just seem to fit in the right place throughout the season, of course, excluding the last day of September. But regardless of that, the Swans did have a very impressive year, but when we're talking about this year in 10 or 15 years' time, we're going to remember the Swans for being the team that got absolutely pumped in the grand final. So I think a B- minus is acceptable. Either a B- minus or a C+, plus, but I think a C is just way too harsh for a team that finished third. So, yeah, I'm going to stick with a B-. In fourth place, rounding out our top four, is the Collingwood Football Club. Boy, oh boy, wowee. At the start of this year, if you would have told me that Collingwood would win, what did they win in the end? 11 games in a row, finish inside the top four, and would fail to make the grand final by one point, people would think you are a Collingwood-biased madman. There would not have been a single person on the planet that would have said that. Hell, saying that Collingwood would even finish in the top 10 of the ladder is just completely ridiculous. And they were just one point away from a grand final. They get an A+. I mean, does that really surprise anyone? Like I said, nobody had any expectations for this football club. But it's funny looking back on this team now because... The pieces were there at the start of the year. You know, they have ridiculous top-end talent in Scott Pendlebury, Jeremy Howe, Darcy Moore, Brody Majacek. And, I mean, the impact of Nick and Josh Dacos were always going to be a factor. But to do what Collingwood have done, when the previous year they finished second last on the ladder, even if it is Collingwood, 
is completely admirable. And honestly, I think it's funny that Collingwood in their second year of a rebuilding phase has won more finals in the last, like, 15 years than both Essendon and Carlton. Like, that fact, as it stands, is just absolutely hilarious. But the Collingwood Football Club do get an A+. They won 11 games in a row. I had absolutely no expectation for them going into the season. And they were just one point away from entering a grand final. Now, moving on to fifth place is my beloved Freo Dockers. But as I said, I'll get to them at the end since I have a lot more to talk about the Dockers. So we're going to move on to sixth place, which is the Brisbane Lions. Is it controversial to say I think the Lions underperforms this year? Like, obviously not including the finals, but the home and away season, the 23 games alone, the Lions majorly underperformed in my opinion. At the start of the year, many people had Brisbane as the second challenger to Melbourne. Which is weird when you also consider the fact that they've won more finals this year than they did any other time when they finished second or third. I don't know, it's a weird juxtaposition because on the one hand, they've had their worst season since 2019, but on the other hand, they've won more finals this year than they ever did in 2019, 2020 or 2021. So, do I base most of my grading off their home and away performance or their finals performance? I guess I'll do both just to give you a bit of idea. I'll give their home and away season a C, since like I said, they did underperform when compared to my expectations. Like I said, most people had them as the second challenger to Melbourne. But once again, in the finals, they completely blew my expectations out of the water. Like the week prior, if I'm remembering correctly, they were absolutely belted by Melbourne and were playing Richmond, who were in some red hot form, by the way, in a final. Now, these two have played in a lot of finals in the last couple of seasons and Brisbane hasn't exactly gotten the upper hand. So literally nobody thought that Brisbane were going to win this game, regardless of the home ground advantage. Which was a little surprising at the time, but nobody thought they would go to win on next week against Melbourne. The literal reigning premiers, a team that is very well known to smashing Brisbane in the last previous encounters, and above all else, they're playing at the MCG, which is basically the Brisbane Lions kryptonite. And they somehow pulled it off. And then they would go on to play Geelong in a prelim, with Geelong obviously having a bad record in the prelim. And you honestly start to think for a second, could Brisbane from 6th actually make it to the grand final? Now, obviously, that's not what happened. They were absolutely belted by a cat side who just had a complete, perfect finals performance. But again, extremely admirable to finish 6th and unlike anybody's expectations, not be down for the count and willing to fight all the way through to a prelim. Even though they were absolutely belted by the Cats, and I will acknowledge that, I think a B plus is a pretty fair grading considering literally nobody thought Brisbane were even going to win the first week. So what, I gave the Lions a C in the season home and away grading and the Lions a B plus in the final. So I guess it only makes sense if I pick the middle between the two and say a B. Honestly, that's completely valid. Even if you say that's a little above what you thought the Lions did in 2022. I mean, the trade period, now they're going to get Josh Dunkley. They're going to bring in Will Ashcroft, basically the day cost of 2023. I think a B is a pretty solid rating for the Brisbane Lions. And now moving on to the seventh position on the ladder, we have the Richmond Tigers. 
little bit similar to what I thought of Collingwood. I basically had no expectation for Richmond at all. I thought they were washed. I thought they were done. I thought finals was completely out of the book. But once again, they defied my expectations and qualified for the finals quite convincingly, if I'm being honest. They averaged 98 points and kicked over 100 points 11 times in the season, and that does include the elimination final. Way above the AFL average, and that forward line is seriously threatening. You've got Shy Bolton, who will probably be the best player in the comp next year. Morris Rioli Jr. is a star. Tom Lynch, who's still kicking big bags of goals. Jack Rewalt, the experienced veteran. And then you take into account that they're going to get Jacob Hopper and Tim Taranto next year, two of the most explosive and damaging midfielders in the game. Like, I thought the dynasty was over in 2021, but look out. Richmond in 2023 look really, really good. But as for the season of itself, this may seem a little bit high, but I'm going to give them an A. Honestly, going into the season, I had zero expectations for them. If you would have told me they would have played finals, I would have been genuinely surprised. And even if they did finish 7th and got batted out in the first week against Brisbane, when that team is up and going, they are genuinely one of the best teams in the comp who have just added two of the most young and explosive midfielders in the game. So again, look out for 2023 because the Tiger is still roaring. But as for now, they may have just scraped it, but I'm going to give them a solid A. And now moving on to the last position of the AFL ladder, 8th spot, and we have got the Western Bulldogs who just barely scraped in there thanks to a famous Carlton choke in the last game of the season. Obviously coming off the back of a grand final loss last year against the Melbourne Demons, the Bulldogs' 2020 season reads as an opportunity gone begging, despite, as I just said, just sneaking into the finals by some good fortunes outside of their control. Luke Beveridge's men had the elimination final by the scuff of the neck against Fremantle, leading by a game-high 41 points, but they quickly underestimated just how powerful Flagmantle can truly be. And from that point on, they were completely dominated by the Dockers, booking a ticket home to an extended holiday break. Although the overarching feeling was that the Dogs didn't truly deserve to be in the finals, the season was truly reflective of that notion. Following, like I said, a 74-point grand final loss last year, the Bulldogs didn't open their account until round three after both losing to Melbourne and Carlton. Heading into the final round of the season, the task was this. Carlton to lose by 10 or more points, while the Dogs win by 10 or more points to eradicate the percentage difference. The Dogs obviously ended up winning by 23 points, while Carlton led by four goals at three-quarter time as their finals dreams appeared dashed at this point. However, to the dismay of the Blues, Collingwood stormed back into the contest with five last-term goals, winning by one solitary point. This result put the Dogs into the finals by 0.5%. Although they did sneak into the eight, the season did finish in a disappointment as majority of the season had been played out to be. I guess the main point of what I'm trying to say is that their best could compete with anyone, but their worst continually let them down. I think a C plus is completely acceptable because on the one hand, this was definitely far more disappointing than their 2021 season, but at the same time, they did scrape into the finals and they definitely did have some highs during the season. So the Western Bulldogs get a season grading of C plus in 2022. And now moving on to the big one, the elephant in the room, the one that you guys have all been wanting to hear, the fifth placed, my 2022 season grading for the Fremantle Dockers. 
I guess the best way to deconstruct our season is to start from where it all began. And that is the start of the season. Going into 2022, I genuinely had no clue on what Freo were going to look like. My thought was we were either going to stay exactly where we are in 2021, sort of just in and out of the top eight every week, or just shoot up the ladder. And my final prediction after watching the preseason performances against West Coast is that I had Frio 8th. Looking at those preseason games, it's pretty evidential how we became the team we are known to be now. Like, you can tell there was a plan from the start. The, the games were much more open against West Coast. When we took the game on, we took it on with very ferocity and speed. And the best thing about it is that we could do that as well because our back line is so solid. When we were charging inside forward 50, the forward line looked very open and mobile. And when the ball was there to be won, the pressure was on. And like I said, after watching our dominant performances in the preseason match, I felt like it was only fitting to put Freo finally in my top eight. However, I could have never predicted what would happen after that. For me personally, I don't think 2022 has quite sunk in yet because this was arguably one of our best years as a club in the AFL. Like this year is easily in Fremantle's top three best ever seasons as a football club, right alongside 2013 and 15. And that realization that I and we all just witnessed one of the best seasons in our club's history, hasn't quite emotionally hit me yet. And the scarier thing is for the competition is that it's only going to get better from here. Fremantle were one of the genuine top contenders for majority of the season, despite being the 13th youngest team in the competition. That's right, a team that had beaten Geelong and Cadenia Park, the first team to have beaten Melbourne, as well as win the most games of Victoria as they've ever done in their club's history, has an age average of 24. And keep in mind, this is while also possessing the oldest player in the competition in David Mundy, who's obviously now retiring at the end of the season. But the massive wave of hope that has just risen Fremantle up from winning a final from being 41 points down just gives me goosebumps. Like, this was the year that clarifies that this is the team. This is a team that we can believe in. Like, way back when, when JL took over from Ross Lyon after Ross Lyon got sacked, the question, as well as every other coach that gets sacked inside, is, is he the right guy, and is this the right team? Well, for Frio, 2022 answered that question, and it is an astounding yes. In my entire lifetime as a Fremantle supporter, I have never had any belief that even rivals to the amount of belief I have in this team. And yes, that does include the 2013 and 15 Frio team. There is not a single hated or bad player in our best 22. Everyone is either a star or lovable in their own sort of way. Little bit off track, but let's actually get back to the season itself. Beginning the season with an absolute classic in Adelaide against the Crows, coach Justin Longmuir opened his account with a one-point victory. Young defender Heath Chapman's heroics were on show, keeping the ball in play with seconds remaining to prevent a draw. Aside from round two, when they hosted St. Kilda Adoptus, they lost by 10 points, the Dockers were 7-1 and one after round eight, including big wins against Geelong at GMHBA and Carlton by 35 points. Sitting a game behind Melbourne on the ladder, Longmuir and his side gave themselves the best chance to jump back into the finals for the first time since 2015. However, shock losses to Gold Coast and Collingwood in the weeks following came as a surprise, with the club being beaten in the wet. 
Starting to slip down the ladder, a scalp was needed for Fremantle, and luckily they faced an undefeated Melbourne outfit at the MCG. In a cold and jeering night at the home of football, the Dockers were outplayed in the first half, trailing by 30 points late into the second term. What followed gave the club and the fans enormous belief that they could make a play at the Premiership, pilling on eight goals to one in the third quarter to open up a 17-point lead. More pain was added to the Demons in the last term, slotting another four majors to a goalless Melbourne quarter in a 38-point victory, ending a very impressive 17-game winning streak by the at-the-time reigning Premiers. Taking that confidence over downing the reigning Premiers away from home, the Dockers managed to knock off Brisbane and Hawthorne in successful weeks before entering the mid-season bye. Dual Brownlow medalist and captain Nat Fife returned from a string of injuries that's kept him sidelined since round 19, 2021 for the Hawks game, sparking the side and adding another dimension to their game. Sitting equal first with the Lions and Demons, Fremantle started believing that top four was on the cards. The Dockers had developed an extremely stinging and well-rounded defensive lineup, which conceded only 831 points in the first 13 matches of 2022, sitting just behind Melbourne, who have only conceded 829 points in what was a stark contrast to the year before. Although the next month saw a mixture of results, with the club winning two, Port Adelaide and Saints, while going down to the Blues in Sydney. Nearing the end of the 2022 season, Fremantle need to put on wins on the board, as dates with Richmond, Melbourne and the Bulldogs were to come. Round 19 saw the one and only draw for the year, with the Tigers and Dockers unable to split when the final siren sounded. And just to add more salt to the wound, Fife re-injured his hamstring, ruling him out for another month of football and putting him in doubt for the rest of the season. With three matches remaining in the season, Fremantle needed just one more win to lock away a final spot. Travelling to Marvel Stadium to take on the Dogs, jumped out of the gates and never looked like turning back. Sitting two points outside third position, tasks against West Coast and GWS seemed easy beats as top four was back on the cards. Winning by 24 points against the Eagles and 20 against GWS was just not enough, with the Pies beating Carlton in round 23 by one point to secure the double chance. Fremantle finished in 5th position, unlucky to miss out on the top 4, but looking to face the Bulldogs in the first elimination final. Entering the game as hot raging favourites, Fremantle were jumped and trailed by 41 points in the second quarter, with the thought of an early finals exit a real possibility. Kicking 11 goals to 3 after quarter time set up one of the most remarkable comebacks ever seen in a final. No less as the Dockers stormed home to win by 13 points and set up a semi-final against Collingwood. Facing 90,000 plus screaming fans at the MCG was just too much for Longmuir's side to handle, who couldn't match it with the superior Pies outfit. Although ultimately failing short of Premiership glory, 2022 was a sixth season for Fremantle, joining in on the finals race for the first time since 2015. Being the youngest side in September by a significant margin, Longmill and his coaching staff have plenty to work on over the next coming seasons and are in a good step to push for top four spot in 2023. With this being said, it's no shocking revelation to hear me say that the Dockers' season was an absolute success in 2022. We became a competitive final side for the first time since 2015. JL's game plan seemed to click this year more than it has any other year. And the club is now transforming into a destination club with bringing in big names like Luke Jackson. And the best part about it for me is that I as a Frio fan did not see any of this coming. Well, at least for this year. 
I think the best and most necessary step for you have to make in 2023 is make a legitimate case to be a premiership contender. We were a premiership contender at some point throughout the middle of the year, but significant losses to Collingwood, Gold Coast, and etc. helped really lower our expectations for a flag. So I think in 2023, being able to build a premiership campaign is our number one step. If I was to summarize 2022 in a nutshell, it would be everything that could have possibly gone right did go right. And it made way for one of the most enjoyable seasons I've ever had the pleasure of witnessing as a supporter. I'm giving the Dockers an A grade for their 2022 season. Okay, that's the best question you can come up with after two hours of footy. You're quite brilliant, Shane. Yeah, terrific. As always, we will cap off this episode with your quite brilliant Q&A. And our first question, at biggest Brayshaw's fan, will Brayshaw be better than Nat Fife? I think if you were to compare Brayshaw and Nat Fife's career this deep into Brayshaw's career so far, because especially with Nat Fife in his early years, I don't remember him pulling nearly the same disposal count as Brayshaw. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that Fife played a very different role to Brayshaw when they were first playing AFL. Fife was more of a winger slash medium forward in his first couple of years, which means Fife obviously didn't touch the footy as nearly as much as Brayshaw in their first couple of years. Once Fife did come that contested midfielder, he was already one of the best players in the competition going around, even going as far back as 2012. While on the other spectrum, Brayshaw's basically had to play the same position throughout his whole career as that sort of half-contested, half-outside, hard-working midfielder, which has allowed Brayshaw to burst out far quicker than Nat Fife. And also, it also depends like on their legacy as well. Brayshaw seems more of a club legend than an AFL legend. What I mean by that is like, think of guys like Joel Selwood and Scott Penelbury, you know, those sort of iconic club legends that simply the organization will never forget. That seems more like Brayshaw. Fife is an AFL legend. Like, he is easily one of the best players this generation has ever seen. And there's no doubt in saying that he will be an AFL legend. He is the only player currently to have won two Brownloads still playing in the AFL. But yet again, if you're comparing Brayshaw and Nat Fife by the first few years of the AFL, Brayshaw has achieved far more than Nat Fife. Andy Brayshaw was this year's AFL's most valuable player. And he won that at the age of 22. While I believe Nat Fife won his first AFLPA when he was... 24, 25-ish, I believe it was 2014. And Brayshaw and Nat Fife are only two out of three Fremantle players that have won the best and fairest under the age of 22, with the other one being the one and only Matthew Pavlich. But if I was to summarize it down, I would say if you compare Brayshaw's first four years versus Fife's first four years, I'd say Brayshaw. But if you're comparing their whole careers based off now, I mean, Brayshaw doesn't have anything on that five as of now. But I guess the question then was, at the end of Brayshaw's career, do I think he'll be better than that five when looked back on? And it's hard to say, like, despite both being midfielders, they play both very different roles. Like I said, Brayshaw's that sort of balanced midfield that works really hard up and down the ground and is defensively one of the best midfielders in the comp. But Fife's the exact opposite. Fife is just a complete contested machine who has been called out in the past for not being a great defensive player. 
And must we forget, Nat Fife's best span of footy was arguably the best span of footy the game has ever seen. Like, in 2015, for those first 10 weeks, he was literally tearing grown men apart with his bare hands. In fact, during the last couple of weeks or so, I've decided to re-watch the Dockers 2015 season. To be honest, I don't know exactly why, but one day I just decided to do it. And watching those first 10 weeks, those first 10 rounds of footy, really stood out just how different Nat Fife was. Like, that man would not lose a single contest. Not one. And, of course, he had arguably the best one-on-one the game has ever seen with Patrick Dangerfield. Like, Fife, during that span of his career, was just on a completely different level to any other player that we've seen. To put this in perspective, Fife's peak form of footy is arguably the best form of footy that the game has ever seen. And I really do mean that. Like, some players have definitely had better careers, and there are probably other players that have had better years than Fife in 2015, like Dustin Martin in 2017. But if you are comparing players to their absolute 100% best, there is arguably no one better than 2015 Nat Fife. And just the cherry on top of all of that is that Nat Fife was by far, and I real and I cannot exaggerate this enough, by far the best one-on-one player going around in the competition at that time. Like, I don't know whether it was AFL 360 or on the couch. I'm pretty sure it was on the couch, but they showed the percentage of one-on-one win rates, and Nat Fife's was 74% compared to the second-best player, which was Josh Kennedy, the West Coast key forward, which was at 54. That man literally had a better 20% win rate than the best key forward going around in the competition. That's how good he was. If I was to name a footballer at their 100% best that could make a legitimate challenge against Nat Fife, it would be 2016 Dangerfield. In my opinion, and this is just my opinion, you don't have to take this too seriously, but Patrick Dangerfield's 2016 season is seriously underrated. Like, it especially doesn't help when you're sandwiched between 2015 Nat Fife and 2017 Dustin Martin. But, like, some of the games he had during that period were absolutely insane. There was a particular one against North Melbourne, which is arguably the greatest individual performance I've ever seen in a football game, at least in my lifetime. He had two goals, 48 disposals at 83% efficiency, 23 contested possessions, as well as 13 marks and 13 clearances. But to get back to the question, I would say five as of right now, but maybe in four, five years' time, Angie Brashaw. Macwood Acres asks, how many games for Josh Corbin next year if Tabs and Amos remain injury-free? So, Corbett's a bit of a weird case for me. I think fans are putting a little bit more overhype and expectations on him. I mean, practically every Freo fan that I've talked to has Corbett in their best 22. But Corbett has said countless times that he's been told that he won't be confirmed a spot in the best 22. Which I definitely think is the right move. A guy like Corbett should earn his spot in the best 22 rather than be put straight in. Because the way our forwards forward line works is that you have the key forwards and then the rest of small forwards who act pressure both up and down the ground. 
And like, put it this way, Tabin and Amos are going to be the two main key forwards for the year. And then you've got Walters, Swikowski, Schultz, Banfield and Collier pushing for best 22. And then you also consider the fact that Nat Fife's probably going to be playing majority of his career down there. And that's like seven to eight players, plus Corbett as well, trying to fit into six-man forward line. It's going to be a bit of a tricky issue for the management team. The game that Corbett plays, we need in our forward line. That's sort of second mobile key forward that can move up and down the ground and help set up goals inside forward 50, as well as being able to go further up the ground and take big contested marks. But at least in my opinion, I need to see that he's capable of doing that in our forward line. His VFL form is very decent, but Sam Sturt's actually kicked more goals in the waffle than Corbett has in the VFL. But again, Sam Sturt and Josh Corbett play very different roles as key forwards. But look, all I'm saying is that similar to Will Brody at the end of last year, I need to see for myself that Corbett is capable of playing that second mobile key forward role before I put him in my best 22. So that's why when I made my best 22 a couple of weeks ago, I didn't have Corbett in the team because I need to actually see both in preseason and maybe even the first couple of matches for the season that he's actually capable of playing the role that we want him to play. If he isn't, I would probably say less than eight games at most. But if he is capable of playing that role, I'd say probably more than 15, 17 if he's injury-free. Up next is actually a very good question from Rody underscore Derek's 11s. Who do you think will get in the draft and will we sign anyone from the DFA players this year? For those who don't know, the DFA is basically delisted free agency. In terms of the DFA, I can't really imagine Fro picking anyone up from there. There's no player in that pool that we particularly need. SEN suggested Fro could potentially pick up Braden Ham, but I think that's incredibly unlikely at this point. Frio were interested in Quinton Narkle from Geelong a couple of years ago, and he's been delisted. But as of now, there has been no news that Frio are even interested in Narkle. The Dockers were also interested in Tom Phillips when he departed Collingwood. He was recruited by Hawthorne and obviously delisted just a couple of weeks ago. But besides pure speculation, there has been no interest from Fremantle whatsoever. So I don't think Fremantle will be taking anyone from the DFA anytime soon. As for the draft though, stick around that on Freo Hub because I am actually going to be posting an entire draft preview in the next couple of days, so definitely look forward to that. I'll be covering basically every single player that either will or could come to Freo, so keep an eye out for that. In fact, just this morning, I posted my first draft profile on Caleb Smith, so go check that out at Freo underscore Hub or at Big Digs underscore Podcast. Both will be available on Instagram. Next question from Rick P 85s Highest goal scorer next year for Frio, and how many goals would they kick? The guy I'm about to mention has been seriously flying under the radar for the last couple of seasons. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, he's actually been runner-up for our leading goal kicker in the last three to two years. So I'm going to pick Lockie Schultz. I think next year, especially with how small forwards are developing, Lockie Schultz will be the one that steps up the most and kicks the most bag of goals. I also wouldn't be surprised if Matt Tabner becomes a leading goal kicker again, since he's done that quite a few times in the last couple of seasons. Walters could also be up there. 
I think he's, what, an eight-time leading goal kicker for our club, so... And he still has that X-Factor ability. But other than those three, I can't really think of anyone who's going to kick more than 30-plus goals. I don't think Amos has the experience enough to kick that many bag of goals. Nat Fife's kicking accuracy is horrible, and even if he did fix that part of his game, I don't think he's going to kick more than 40 goals. And I simply can't imagine seeing guys like Switkowski or Banfield possibly kicking the most goals for Freo this year. Next question, will we see Hayden Young play midfield minutes next year? Definitely. I do think he'll spend about roughly 15 to 10 minutes in the midfield. I don't think he'll be starting for, say, in the center bounce. I don't think he has that experience or you know that contested footy in his game yet. He'll be more of an outside midfielder who could damage players by foot, not by contested footy. Again, call back to the 2022 elimination final against the Dogs where he receives that gem of a handball from Sarong and pierced it beautifully, the giant Amos inside the forward 50. We need to really start weaponizing Hayden Young's left foot now that David Mundy, our best ball user, won't be a part of Freo next year. And maybe Hayden Young moving up and down the ground similarly to the same way Jordan Clark does will help his game a lot. Next question from charlie.hunt underscore s. What got you to make your fan account? Before even I started making memes about the Dockers, I was always a massive Fremantle fan. People that I think most of you already know this, but obviously when Fife got drafted, my family was best mates with their family, so we all switched to Frio. And since then, we were just massive Fremantle supporters. I was definitely the biggest out of the bunch. And I've always had a strong connection with the internet. If that sounds weird, like I always know my memes of got a big brain when it comes to internet culture. So I kind of put my love for the internet and my love for Froyo together. And I first started out as memes underscore about underscore Fremantle, a direct ripoff of memes about Carlton, by the way. When you first start your account, you always take big inspirations from the people that inspire you to create your accounts. And for me, that was memes about Carlton. And then after... A year or so, I gained a 1,000 followers. I slowly started transitioning into becoming my own thing. I remember, I think it was early 2020, I did a massive, like, poll story on what my name should be, and the grand final ended up being Freo Memes versus Freo Hub, with Freo Hub winning. And, yeah, since early 2020, it hasn't changed. And sort of throughout the middle of 2020, I started to realize I really love creating content. Like, I love producing content, I love creating content for you guys, and I love keeping up with journalism. So then I started slowly taking up journalism, and by the end of the year, I started wanting to create my own podcast, but I didn't have the equipment to do so. So towards the end of 2020, during Christmas, I got myself a Blue Yeti microphone, thanks mum and dad, which I'm actually using to record right now. And then at the end of 2021, I got myself a working laptop in order to create my podcast. And so, yeah, that's basically the story. Last question from Max Watkins. How many goals would Shai Amos kick in 2023? Like I said earlier, I don't think he'll kick enough goals to be our leading goal kicker, but I think top five is acceptable for a guy who's literally going to play his, what, fourth game at the start of next year. I think people really need to be patient with Shai Amos considering he's still a teenager. In comparison, Matt Tabernard took a good 10 years to start finding career best form. And I'm not saying Amos will take 10 years to start becoming a good footballer, but I think we as fans 
need to be patient with Amos, but in context of next year, I think any more than 25 is a W for Amos. But playing as a key forward does take a couple of years of experience in order to have a truly breakout season. And with that being said, that is going to cap off this week's episode of the Big Digs podcast. The draft is less than three weeks away, and I'm actually really intrigued to see who Freo call out, considering we don't know nearly as much as we've done in previous years about who we could possibly draft. But with that being said, I'm your host as always, and this is Big Dig signing off. He's launched, he's got it online!